All right, so we are starting in on the book of Ephesians this morning. We've got a new series, and this is going to take us uh, probably to the end of May. That's how it's kind of mapped out at this point. So um, the book of Ephesians is a powerful book. If you're familiar with it at all, um, you know that we're never going to exhaust this deep well. So there's more for us, even if you've read it a hundred or a thousand times. Um, It certainly has been a powerful book for me, life-changing book for me. I remember um, back when Beth and I were dating, there was a new pastor that came in, and the first book that he preached through was Ephesians. And at that time, I know I was really wrestling with issues of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and here the pastor jumps in on Ephesians 1, and, you know, election and predestination are right up in my face, and I didn't like it. But I had to wrestle with what do these things mean? And I needed to submit my mind to the mind of God and allow his word to shape my thoughts rather than me try to, you know, cut and paste and do some designer Christianity and leave out the stuff I didn't like. So um, his word, this book, has shaped my mind as well as eventually my heart caught up um, in understanding and embracing these truths, and then I realized that they are just precious and sweet. And then by the time we got engaged and we're preparing for marriage, he was in Ephesians 5. So that was really relevant because Ephesians 5 has one of the most extensive passages on Christian marriage, and we'll, Lord willing, look at that in months to come. So it's had a huge influence on me, and I'm excited to see how God will use this book among us as a church family. So you can imagine how many testimonies down through the ages um, or how many testimonies there will be in the future of the eternity-changing, life-changing impact that this little book has made. So just one brief little testimony that I read that was really encouraging. A guy named John Mackey was a professor at Princeton in the early to mid-20th century. He was born in the UK, and when he was 14, he experienced a dramatic conversion while reading the book of Ephesians. Here's what happened in his own words. He said, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. Do it again, Lord. Any amens to that? Like, do you want to see the Lord do that again and again? And for all of us, may Jesus Christ become the center of everything. That is certainly what the book of Ephesians is aiming at. So let's expect that. Let's welcome that rather than resist it. So it's pretty clear that Mackey never got over the power of this little letter. Some 45 years later, he gave some lectures on Ephesians, and he said that Ephesians is, quote, the distilled essence of the Christian religion. This letter is pure music. What we read here is truth that sings, doctrine set to music. And actually, the songs that were chosen for this morning, we were singing Ephesians in the songs that we were singing. I feel like maybe we should sing all those again after the sermon. I don't know. Those were great. Very fitting. And uh, we're singing the music of Ephesians this morning. 
So again, like I said, it doesn't matter if this is the first time you're reading or studying this book or it's the 900th time. It is powerful and life-changing, so let's prayerfully welcome all of what God wants to do in our lives and in our church through this book in the coming months. So um, we're not going to read the background this morning, but it will serve you well to take some time this afternoon or this week to read Acts 19 and 20. That is the story of the start of the church in Ephesus and the time that Paul spent there, in a sense, kind of planting the church. So Acts 19 recounts Paul's arrival in Ephesus, and some really interesting things happen there, just to kind of whet your appetite or pique your interest. There's magic books and seven exorcists who tried to cast out a demon from a man in Jesus' name and ended up running away from the guy, you know, naked and wounded. So they, they weren't Christians. They were just trying to use the name of Jesus, almost like a talisman. Um, there was a riot because of the economic impact of the power of the gospel. So you got to go read and find out about that. And then in Acts 20, Paul recounts his return to Ephesus to encourage and pray with the elders on his way to Jerusalem because he knew that he wasn't going to see them face to face again in this life on this earth. And that is a really precious and powerful um, interaction that he has there with them. So as we go through this series, I'd encourage you, read through the book of Ephesians several times. Maybe even just plan to read it every weekend, like until we're done with the series. Um, I don't think you'd ever regret doing that if you decided to do that. So bottom line is the more you put into this study, the more that you will benefit from it. And if you happen to really want to dive in and maybe read a commentary alongside your study, um, this is probably the one I would recommend. If you did one, The Message of Ephesians by John Stott. All right? Very readable and practical and helpful. So, um, so Paul wrote this letter probably in 62 A.D. during his imprisonment in Rome, which you can read about that imprisonment in Acts 28. Okay? He also wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon during the same time, the same imprisonment. So those four letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, are known as the prison epistles, okay? Epistles, just a fancy name for a letter, okay? So the prison letters. All right, so here, let's dive in. There's that outline that you can access on the live stream page, or the points will be up on the screen. So first point, the first two verses... Uh, where are we? We are in Ephesus in Christ. Okay? So, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul certainly didn't seek out this apostleship. He wasn't one of the twelve, right? He was sought by Jesus and struck down on the Damascus Road blind. You know, he was going to persecute Christians, and then he became a Christian because Jesus confronted him and saved him right there on the Damascus Road. So he is an apostle by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So one of the major themes that we're going to see over and over in Ephesians is identity. Paul reminds the Ephesian Christians again and again of who they are. So you can see this right out of the gate. It's written to the saints. And that's not a special class of super-Christian in Ephesus, you know, like the, the Navy SEALs of the church in Ephesus were the saints, and then everybody else was kind of like, 
you know, JV. They were just kind of like the lowly infantry privates or whatever. No, this is all of the believers in Ephesus, and this is all believers in Jesus. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. Identity, that's who you are. You've been set apart by God to belong to Him. And you've been set apart for holy purposes, to live for Him. It's who you are. So yes, these folks are in Ephesus, verse 1. That's where they're located. That's who they are in a sense. They're Ephesians, just like we are in Wilmington. But even more importantly, they are in Christ Jesus. They're faithful in Christ Jesus. So in a very real sense, that is actually where they're located. And it certainly is who they are. They are in Christ. Union with Christ. Identity. So the title of our Ephesians series is going to be United in and Under Christ. So why that title? Well, first off, unity is a huge theme, central theme in the book. Okay, we'll see that in weeks to come. Um, the end, that latter half of chapter 2, dividing wall of hostilities brought down, and he made the two one. And then chapter 4, right at the beginning, one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Okay, unity is a huge theme. So the theme of what it means to be in Christ with all its attendant attending blessings is central. So united in Christ, we're going to see this in Christ thing this morning in a big way. In fact, it's striking how many times Paul uses the language of in him or in Christ just in these 14 verses, so keep an eye out for them. And God's plan that all things would be united under the headship of Christ, the lordship of Christ. We see that in verses 9 and 10. That is also central. In fact, some commentators believe that 1, 9 to 10 represents the thematic center of Ephesians. And I tend to agree with them, and we'll look at that in a few minutes. So big picture, <clears throat> all the blessings come to us, all the spiritual blessings come to us in Christ, being united to him. And when we are in Christ, we are united one to another. And so thus, the theme of unity is huge in Ephesians. And God's plan is that everything and everyone find their proper place under the headship of Christ. And all the application sections in the book will flesh that out as far as what it looks like to live under his headship. So united in Christ and under Christ. All right? All right, so let's zoom back in now. That was big picture the title of the series. Let's zoom back in. Verse 2. This isn't a throwaway line, as if it's some sort of just like, you know, obligatory salutation. This is purposeful by Paul. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is everything to us. All the spiritual blessings that Paul's going to write about are ours in Christ, and they come to us undeserved. They're all of grace. I mean, we see that in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, right? By grace, you've been saved. So we need to live all of our lives by grace through faith in Jesus, not just the beginning. It's not just how we become a Christian. It's how we live all of the Christian life. 
And that grace leads to peace. Not just a peaceful feeling, although that certainly is a wonderful result, and oftentimes that is the case by God's grace, but this is the Old Testament idea of shalom. Okay, Paul has a bigger picture idea of when he says peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's thinking of the Old Testament concept of shalom. Okay, this holistic human flourishing. It's the opposite of conflict and strife. It's wholeness and rest and blessedness. So our sin and rebellion against God makes us his enemies. And so there's conflict there. There's a war there rather than peace. So through Christ, we can have peace with God. That is the fountainhead of all true shalom, true human flourishing. So for instance, if, if your conscience is being eaten up by guilt, because every human being experiences guilt, because the law of God is stamped on our souls, and we've all violated that law. We've broken God's law. So how do we deal with that? Some people try to just make up for it by, you know, doing good deeds and hoping it'll quiet your conscience. We look around and, well, if I'm better than other people, then I'm probably okay and God will let me in. But we never know if it's enough. You won't have this kind of peace unless it comes by grace through faith in Jesus. So, grace to you, and when you experience the grace that comes only through Christ, you know His peace. So we could tease out this peace also in relationships and in the church, and we'll let the coming chapters of Ephesians do that. So uh, we'll move on at this point. So let's look now at verse 3. And Paul, this is one sentence in Greek, from verse 3 to 14, one sentence. It's like 101 words. Paul just gushes with this one big, long, elegant sentence in Greek from verses 3 to 14. And it is dense and rich with grace and truth. And we're certainly not going to exhaust it this morning. In fact, hopefully, I'll just whet your appetite and you can go study it some more on your own and just continue to milk all the sweet grace and truth that's, that's here. Spend the rest of our lives doing this and not hit the bottom, okay? So, point number two, verse three, blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So, do you see the word blessed or blessing three times there? Paul is blessing God, praising God, for how he has blessed us with every blessing. So Paul's praising God because God is worthy of all worship and honor and blessing. And Paul is then, in effect, also teaching the Ephesians that God is worthy of blessing and praise. Because what he goes on to say is all the reasons why he's blessing God. So if the Ephesians and if we track with all these things that God has done and they sink in and we realize how good he's been, we are going to join Paul in blessing God for how he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So he's going to start to enumerate these blessings. 
So Paul's actually eulogizing God here. That might sound weird. But the word for blessed be in Greek, it's a verb. It's eulogetos. Okay, you can hear eulogy in there, right? Our word eulogy comes from this word. So we usually associate eulogies with funerals, right? But they don't have to be. You know, in the basic sense, a eulogy is a speech or a piece of writing that praises someone highly. So God isn't dead, nor will he ever be, but he is most certainly deserving of the highest praise. So Paul is going to go on and explain how and why God has blessed us. And as you hear it all laid out, what should happen, may this happen, Lord, the blessing should just well up and overflow. We're going to join Paul in blessing God because of how he has blessed us so richly with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So notice again that all the blessings come to us in Christ. And he's blessed us in Christ in the heavenly places. So what does that mean? Well, we'll not unpack it all now, but just flip over to chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. It's probably familiar territory, but maybe you didn't notice the, the kind of heavenly places language. So remember, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, beginning of chapter 2. And then Paul turns the corner and says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you know that if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, you are, in one very real sense, seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Like, what does that mean? Well, again, it's identity. It's who you are. You are a saint whose citizenship is in heaven. And since you are in Christ, you're united to him by faith. If Jesus is seated in the heavenlies, then you are also seated with him. So verse 3 kicks off this whole just big long eulogy full of high praise to God for all that he's done. And we need to see that all of this theology is not just an end in itself. It's not just so that we can fill our heads and have fat heads with lots of theological knowledge. It's all meant to lead to worship, to doxology, to praise. So when you read your Bible, don't stop short of worship. We don't just read the Bible just to learn more facts or to get better at Bible trivia or to check off the boxes and move on and just feel like we've been a good Christian today because we checked off the boxes. You read the Bible to know God and what he's done for us through Christ and by the power of the Spirit so that we will worship and glorify this glorious, blessed, triune God. So Paul can't help but bless God for how he has blessed us in and through Christ. So let's see some of these blessings now. How has God blessed us with every spiritual blessing? Let's read on. Point number three, the Father chose. As we're going to see, this is Trinitarian, the rest of this section. Um, 
It's a little bit of an oversimplification because the Father's present the whole way through, and obviously, um, yeah, there's more ways in which that's the case, but, but kind of in a rough outline, it is helpful. There's a focus on the Father in verses 4 to 6, on the Son in verses 7 to 12, and on the Spirit in verses 13 and 14. Okay, so the Father chose, verses 4 to 6. So, catching the context, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And now he's going to enumerate some of those blessings. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. So he chose us. If you're in Christ, he chose us and predestined us. Uh Uh-oh. Some of you are already on the defensive. Like, in your minds, you're already going like this, you know? Oh, then we're just robots. You know, election, predestination... Is this one of those Calvinistic churches? Oh, and God just picks whoever goes to heaven and whoever goes to hell. It doesn't matter if we pray or whatever, because God's just going to do what he's already decided. Well, we're certainly not robots. And it certainly matters that we pray, and what we do matters, including sharing the gospel. The doctrines of election and predestination never function in the Bible to demotivate people from being involved in what God is doing. Actually, the opposite is true. So I I remember hearing John Piper tell the story of some guy named John Alexander, former president of InterVarsity. You know how they do Urbana every, what, three years, something like that? So he was at Urbana, 1967, okay? And he's sitting there, and this guy, John Alexander, gets up, and he says this. At the beginning of my missionary career, I said that if predestination were true, I could not be a missionary. And then he said this, Now after 20 years of struggling with the hardness of the human heart, I say I could never be a missionary unless I believed the doctrine of predestination. So that's exactly how this Truth encouraged the Apostle Paul when he faced opposition among the Jews in Corinth. Okay, just I'm giving you an illustration here. Another um, biblical perspective kind of in anecdotal form in Paul's life. So he's testifying to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah and they were opposing and reviling him and so he turned from the Jews in the synagogue and focused on preaching Christ to the Gentiles. So you can imagine he was probably discouraged by that. And here's what happened in Acts 18, verses 9 to 10. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man shall attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city. So actually, the doctrines of election and predestination were supposed to be motivating, encouraging, that actually if Paul's faithful to scatter the seed, God's going to save. 
He actually can save. He's got people in the city that he's going to save. So I'm going to be motivated to be bold to sow the seed generously. So I'm not going to try to pretend that these doctrines aren't difficult. Certainly they're difficult to understand, hard to swallow. But let's let the Bible define reality for us. Okay? And define what these doctrines mean and how they're supposed to function in our lives. Okay, sometimes the doctrines of election and predestination, people just end up like having philosophical discussions until they're blue in the face. Okay, like we got to kick it around and figure out what this all means and the implications. But don't ever just stop there. Look at how they function in the Bible and let them function in that way in your life and in my life. So, Verse 4, God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in Christ, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we would, you know, just be like a dog and a bone, you know, in a theological argument. No, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So election is intended to lead to holiness of life. That's God's purpose in choosing us. It's not... He didn't choose us to make us arrogant theological cranks and nitpicks. I mean, isn't it crazy that Calvinists are sometimes, that's, they're just known to be the arrogant ones. That should be an oxymoron. People that recognize the sovereignty of God should be just humbled to the dust. God's choosing of us, even you, even me, should lead us to humility and holiness. Not arrogance and just, you know, argumentativeness. So just stop and let this verse sink in and have its intended effect to lead to worship, to blessing God for how he's blessed you. If you are in Christ this morning, if you are a Christian, United to Christ by the amazing grace of God, why are you in Christ? Why are you a Christian? How did this happen? I mean, certainly you believed, right? Was it ultimately because of something you did? Was it ultimately something because of someone, something you are? Because of your merit? No, look, look at this. It's because you were chosen before the foundation of the world. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Just let that sink in. Absolute, sheer, utter, free mercy. Have you ever wanted to be wanted Maybe you haven't found much love in this life, whether friend, friendship love or romantic love. Maybe you've longed to be married and no one has ever wanted you. Maybe you are married and you still feel, don't, still feel like you're not particularly desired or wanted. Or maybe some of you had parents who made you feel like you were an inconvenience or an accident or you were unwanted. Stop and let this sink in. God, the Father of all fathers, set His affection on you 
and chose you before the foundation of the world to be his. Do you see why worship is supposed to be the result of this? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. So he didn't predestine us to argue theology till we're blue in the face. He predestined you for adoption. So if you're a Christian, you were marked out beforehand to belong to the family forever. How sweet is that? Like, look at how personal and loving and familial it is, the language here. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Like, you and me, we all, by nature, kind of like runaway street children that bite the hand that tries to help us. We're the ones that in love he adopted to himself as sons. So I love Russell Moore's book, um, Adopted for Life. Actually, I don't have it here. Uh, Subtitle is The Priority of Adoption for Christian Families and Churches. He writes this, The universe was meant to be a home where the image bearers of God were made in God's image, where the image bearers of God rule and serve under their Father. It was all to be ours. The primeval insurrection, rebellion in the garden, though, turned the universe into an orphanage. The heirs were gone, done in by their appetites. A serpent now holds the cosmos in captivity, driving along the deposed rulers as his slaves. So he lied to our first parents, deceived them, tempted them. They bought the bill of goods, turned paradise into, you know, the orphanage in in Annie. And Satan is the Miss Hooligan, Hannigan, what's, Hannigan, there we go, she is a hooligan. Um, But then he writes this, let it sink in. The New Testament continually points to our adoption in Christ in order to show us that we're really, really wanted here in the Father's house. Do you believe that? That you are really, really wanted here in the Father's house. That's what this adoption means. So predestination is not a truth meant to hang up as many people as possible on, well, if God predestines, then, you know, why do we need to pray? Or It's meant to humble us and to give us soul-level security and to issue forth in gratitude and love and worship because we were marked out by God to belong to Him as His beloved and adopted sons. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is now our Father in and through Christ. Now, did you notice that it says sons? Like, why doesn't it say sons and daughters? Or why doesn't it say children? Is that because the daughters don't matter? No. It's because, in the sense intended here, anyone who's in Christ is a son. Okay? In the ancient Near East, the sons were the ones who received the inheritance, particularly the firstborn son. 
So what Paul is saying is, what he's focusing on here is, in love, God the Father predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. So through Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn, the rightful heir, if we are in Christ, then we are co-heirs with Christ, whether you're a son or a daughter, or whether you're a male or a female, right? So in other words, if we're in Christ, our inheritance is mind-boggling in its greatness and its glory. Everything is ours. The meek shall inherit the earth, right? That's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. We are co-heirs with Christ. Again, if this sinks in, you see how we would respond with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, heavenlies, in Christ. So he's done all of this to the praise of his glorious grace. We'll see this refrain three times in this section. But that's not all. So the Father has chosen, but that's not all. Now the focus shifts to the Son in verses 7 to 12. The Son redeemed. So look at verse 7. In him, once again, this language of in Christ, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. I mean, you just have to stop and slow down. There is so, so much grace packed in here. It's like a treasure trove of grace and blessing. So we can't just blow through this. In Christ we have redemption. What does that mean? Well, it's deliverance by means of a payment. Paying a price, paying a debt. So like the exodus of the people of God out of Egypt, that was redemption. So Pharaoh was the strong master enslaving the people of God, and Yahweh delivered them with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And he did, th did so through a costly sacrifice. The blood of the lamb spread on the doorposts covered the firstborn so they wouldn't die. And Jesus' blood accomplished the greater exodus deliverance, redemption. So we all are enslaved to sin and Satan. We'll look at that at the beginning of chapter 2. Jesus came as the perfect Lamb of God, sent to die and take away our sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses, like it says there in verse 7. And all of this is according to the riches of his grace. I mean, what is your view of God? And I mean, like, not giving me the right answer, but the functional, operational view of God on a daily, weekly basis. Do you feel like God's stingy? Do you operate that way, like he's reluctant to bless you? No, look at this. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. He's not reluctant to bless us. He doesn't just give token amounts of grace and mercy. We don't have to twist his arm or cajole blessing out of him. He's lavish and prodigal. It's like the father in the story of the two sons. He forgives our trespasses like that. He welcomes us home like that. He kills the fattened calf. He puts the ring on our finger and the, the robe on us like that. He lavishes the riches of his grace on his children. So listen, Ephesians is not this systematic theology textbook, nor is the Bible as a whole. 
These are not just mere doctrinal abstractions. These are glorious realities tied to a story that's unfolding. God really entered history, put on flesh and blood to pay for our debt so that we wouldn't have to spend eternity in debtor's prison. And not only did he just kind of clear the debt, but he gave us everything. We're heirs with Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The riches of his mercy, the riches of his grace lavished on us, blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So, you see, when this stuff sinks in, how can we not say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen? Amen. But there's more. So verse 7, in him we've redemption through his blood according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. He wants us to know what he's doing. He's not trying to keep us in the dark. He revealed his redemption plan, the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. Well, what's the purpose? Which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven, things in heaven, I'm sorry, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So, if you were listening earlier, I mentioned that verses 9 and 10 are probably kind of the, the heart, the, the baseline kind of foundational theme of the book of Philippians, or <laughs> Philippians, Ephesians, which could be a little like, um, what? Because it's so complicated, isn't it? Like, what's he saying here? What's he getting at? Well, boil it down to this. According to his purpose, he set forth in Christ to unite all things, cosmic and terrestrial, things in heaven, things on earth. Here, here's what this means. <clears throat> the world, ever since the, the garden and the temptation of Adam and Eve, has been in rebellion, right? But one day, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right now, there are some that bow the knee to King Jesus and recognize that he's Lord. And there are many who reject him. And certainly there's also cosmic forces that resist and battle against the kingship, the lordship of Jesus. So here's the point. God is at work bringing everything under the headship and kingship of Jesus. A little bit at a time, all over this world until one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All rebellion will be thrown down and Christ will be Lord over all. So the church is actually on earth like a trailer. You know what a trailer is? Like a movie trailer? For the coming movie of the renewal of all things. We are a preview of coming attractions. So Jesus is Lord, and so we're actually supposed to be the vanguard. We're supposed to be the preview of what heaven looks like, of what the renewed, all things new earth looks like. So 
marriages and relationships are a mess in this world, aren't they? Because people follow their own whim. Because they follow the evil one in the ways of the world. But what if Jesus is Lord of a marriage? What if a husband loves and sacrifices and lays his life down for his wife like Jesus did the church? What's happening is a little bit of heaven, a little bit of that future, every knee bow, every tongue confess, starts to break in and, you know, this marriage changes. It's beautiful. So, do you see how the church is a preview of coming attractions? This is where history's headed. All things are going to be united under the headship of Christ, under the lordship of Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. You know, Satan and his demons have some influence in this world, but one day that will be completely taken out. This is where history is headed. And if we are in Christ, then we are already participating in what God is doing. He's made this known to us and he's brought us in. He is uniting all things in Christ and everything is finding its proper place under the lordship and kingship of Christ. Okay, on to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. So remember, Jesus is the firstborn son who has the right to the inheritance and we obtain it when we're in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So once again, all of this blessing, all these blessings that we're blessed with, they're for a purpose, that we might be to the praise of his glory. So what's the chief end of man? Go ahead, yell it out. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Those are two sides of the same coin, right? Chief is singular. It's because they go together. Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's not two things, one thing. So one day we will do that fully and always in His presence. But we begin now as we see and savor the blessings that are ours in Christ. And when we experience these blessings, they make us happy. We are blessed people. And blessed, happy people glorify God. So we need to saturate our souls in the blessings. We need to remind ourselves of the blessings so that we bless God, enjoy Him forever, glorify and enjoy Him forever. So we are to be to the praise of His glory. All right, so the Father chose, the Son redeemed. This opening sentence, like I said, is beautifully Trinitarian. Now in verses 13 and 14, we see how the Spirit seals. Last point, the Spirit sealed. In Him, just Christ again, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, faith comes by hearing, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, <clears throat> who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, in Christ, you also believed. Paul writing to these Ephesians, a lot of Gentiles among them. You know, originally Jesus came to his own. Um, 
power, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then also for the, the Gentile to the Greek, right? So you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This seal language denotes ownership. So animals in that time were branded with a seal in the ancient world, and even slaves were at times. Those seals were external, but this seal is made on the heart by the Spirit. So it's a matter of identity once again. Who are you? Whose are you? You belong to God the Father if you're in Christ. You've been adopted as his beloved son. He set his seal on you by the Spirit. So it's like, it's like we were Oliver Twist, you know, subject to the abuse of the workhouse, or, you know, Orphan Annie, subject to the abuse of Miss Hooligan Hannigan. And we were freed and adopted by Daddy Warbucks. And so the, the adoption papers or the new necklace or the new clothes, they were signs and seals that she belonged to Daddy Warbucks. So the Spirit seals us, saying, that one belongs to me. It's identity. Who you are, whose you are. In fact, look at verse 14. It reads, We were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment, the earnest money of our inheritance. So we have the earnest money now. We know that we're co-heirs with Christ, but not until Jesus returns will we experience the fullness of it all. We were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of an, our inheritance. And then it literally reads, until the redemption of the purchased possession. You see that there? Verse 14. So in ESV, it says, until we acquire possession of it. If you look down in the footnote, it says, um, until God redeems his possession. You see, those are quite different. The question is, is this possession ours, our inheritance, or God's? And yes, this passage is spoken of our inheritance because we're adopted into the family. We're in Christ, and so we have this inheritance. But I think that footnote translation is actually the more faithful one. It kind of deals with the language a little bit better that's there, and it also taps into this rich vein of truth that once again gets at our identity. Who are we? We are God's treasured possession. So it says we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until God redeems his possession. Like, He's already purchased us, but until he fully brings us home. So, what? We are God's treasured possession. Identity. We could actually multiply examples. This theme is all over the Bible, but let me just show you two, and we're almost done here. Psalm 33, 12. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen to be his special possession. Or 1 Peter 2, 9 to, 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Isn't that amazing that God would say you are my treasured possession. That's what God thinks of you. In Christ, you also, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until God redeems his treasured possession to the praise of his glory. So let that sink in. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Let's bless God to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people, but now we're God's people. We were like orphans. Now we are home, beloved sons and daughters. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received the rich mercy of God in Christ. So bless, blessed be God. This is who we are. This is whose we are. And all of this comes to us through Christ alone. So we're going to sing a song to close along these lines. And while the musicians are coming up, I want to just close by reading a quote by J.F. Packer on the glory of sonship and adoption. So while they make their way up here, just listen to this quote from the book Knowing God. Adoption, by its very nature, is an art of free kindness to the person adopted. If you become a father by adopting a son or daughter, you do, you do so because you choose to, not because you are bound to. Similarly, God adopts because he chooses to. He had no duty to do so. He, did not have to, he need not have done anything about our sins except punish us as we deserved. But he loved us, so he redeemed us, forgave us, took us as his sons and daughters and gave himself to us as our father. Nor does his grace stop short with that initial act any more than the love of human parents who adopt stop short with the completing of the legal process that makes the child theirs. The establishing of the child's status as a member of the family is only a beginning. The real task remains to establish a genuinely filial relationship between your adopted child and yourself. It is this above all that you want to see and God wants to see. Accordingly, you set yourself to win the child's love by loving the child. You seek to excite affection by showing affection. So with God. And throughout our life in this world and to all eternity beyond, he will be constantly showing us in one way or another more and more of his love and thereby increasing our love to him continually. The prospect before the adopted child of God is an eternity of love. God receives us as sons and loves us with the same steadfast affection with which he eternally loves his beloved only begotten. There are no distinctions of affection in the divine family. We are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. It's like a fairy story. The reigning monarch adopts waifs and strays to make princes of them. But praise God, it is not a fairy story. It is hard and solid fact founded on the bedrock of free and sovereign grace, this and nothing less than this is what adoption means. No wonder John cries, behold what manner of love. When once you understand adoption, your heart will cry the same. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to taste and see that you are good. 
and experience the sweetness of all the blessings that are ours in Christ. In his name and to the praise of your glorious grace, we pray. Amen.